I'm a strategic marketer to help you separate the wheat from chaff to drive business growth. Till we reached Assam where we saw an accident happen. And when we asked the truck driver who had escaped with no injury as to what happened, and he said that as soon as he realized the brakes had failed, he just opened the door and jumped out. So then we realized that the reason seatbelt is perceived as, um, as a death trap is that they won't be able to jump out in time. If I'm an iPhone user, and I have been an iPhone user, and let's say I'm going to stay an iPhone user. So in other words, no advertising is needed for me. Any advertising thrown my way is a waste. But when I see shot on iPhone, I'm sort of wait a minute. I didn't know I can take pictures like that. So I'm going to try and use my iPhone a little better next time. And what is that going to do? That's going to make me better engaged with the product, which means the next time I'm going to buy a product, I'm actually going to be predisposed to buy an iPhone because now I've got a better relationship with the product. In fact, one of my favorite sayings is that great marketing is not about deciding what to do. It's equally about deciding what not to do. What's something new happening in your life right now? Travel is my other hobby besides music. And um, I just crossed 50, 50 countries and uh, a few more to go. Hello, fellows. Welcome to the next episode of Jagged with Jasravi. Subscribe to my channel for conversations at the edge with thought leaders from the branding, marketing, and the business world. Conversations that will ignite new ideas, ideas with rough and sharp edges. Hi, Atul. Thrilled to have you on my show. Very glad to be here. Thank you for inviting <laughs> me. If I requested you to tweet your profile, what would you say? Well, first of all, it won't be a tweet; it'll be an X. Uh, I know. Yeah, but but you, I but I know I know exactly what you mean. I think I would, um, uh, assuming there are still restrictions on the on the uh, the number of characters in it, I would say I'm a strategic marketer to help you separate the wheat from chaff to drive business growth. So my book is about lies, damn lies, and marketing. So that's sort of the theme. That's sort of is what's driven my my career, my uh, my profession over the last few years uh, that I felt that there was a lot of muddiness, a lot of lies were being told in the name of marketing, a lot of uh, false promises, empty promises were being made, uh, leading marketing to get a pretty bad reputation. Mm -hmm. So my book was a small attempt to sort of separate wheat from chaff and sort of say, okay, this is where things go wrong. This is how it should be done. And this is how business leaders and business owners can actually do real marketing without getting uh, without getting hammered with uh, some of the fake stuff that's out there. The premise and the origin story that we will get to uh, in a minute itself is a, a beautiful way um, you know, a very authentic way to convert the skeptics, you know, because you yourself started from there and how... Being a big skeptic, being an absolutely big skeptic, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before we get to how you believe the engineering skills helped you uh, for marketing, for being a marketeer that can separate wheat from chaff, uh, how did it happen that an engineer and, and a committed, passionate engineer converted to marketing 
Yeah. So that's a, that's a, actually a very good question. And I think it, it's not just a personal question, uh, but I think it also reveals a little bit of me and perhaps uh, your viewers and listeners will, some of them might get some lessons from there. So as you alluded to this, uh, I was dead against sales and marketing. In fact, I had, when I was growing up, um, both in high school and then even during college, uh, during IIT, my years at IIT, I had a very low, very, very low opinion of uh, sales and marketing people. I thought they were charlatans, they were gas bags, they only talked and they had their hands in other people's pocket and that was their goal in life. They did not create any real value in this world. Um, and I chose to do mechanical engineering because I wanted to be a car designer. So I could have done computer science, electronics, anything, but my interest was automotive engineering. So I decided to do mechanical engineering from IIT Delhi. And when I graduated, about two thirds of my class, maybe even 80% of my classmates were heading abroad to get their PhDs or MBAs or whatever. But I said, no, I want to really create something here. And I was very fortunate that I got into um, what was then the DCM management training program, You know, the big old DCM conglomerate. Um, and then we went through one year of training and then we were made available to all companies within the DCM family. One of them, one of the companies, which was actually uh, ranked the highest amongst uh, my colleagues as the preferred choice where they wanted to be was the DCM Toyota LCV project. It wasn't even a company yet. It was called the LCV project, Light Commercial Vehicle Project. The surprising thing was that um, there's a gentleman by the name of who, the person who was the chief, chief executive designate, Mr. T.G. Kriplani. Um, he was a real solid engineer. He was in his, I think, mid-60s, maybe late 60s back then. And I was a 21, 22-year-old guy. And he welcomes me on the, my very first day and you know, sits in his office. And he tells me that we're going to put you in marketing. And that's when I'm sure he must have seen all the color leave my face and the smile vanish and all that. And since he was a mechanical engineer himself, he wanted to sort of figure this out as to why am I not so happy about this? And I told him that, you know, I did engineering and wanted to be at this thing and that thing, you know, went through the whole thing. And he said, look, uh, there are only 19 of us in this project. Uh, we got six engineers. We got only one other marketing person. So we need help in marketing. Why don't you take this assignment in marketing for the next you know, 18, 20 months. And then when we do have an org chart, a real org chart, when we have a real company, uh, he says, I promise you, I'll ask you if you want to be an engineer or wherever you want to be, we'll see, we'll reevaluate that. But right now we need help. Everybody's doing everything. So right now we need you to help our marketing guy. So I said, okay, you know, uh, let's, uh, let's do that. I didn't have much of a leverage to negotiate any further anyway. And that's how I was assigned and I tell people that I was dragged into marketing. Now, the net result was that it, uh, the very first project they gave me, I mean, I think the company benefited a lot because you know they really uh, listened to what, what I had to tell them after my first four months. Um, but more than that, I discovered that marketing can not only be a lot of fun, but it also uses my engineering knowledge, which was very important to me. Um, the project that I was given was basically drive around the country, right from Delhi to Kanyakumari and then all the way to the east and then to Bombay and this and that. Uh, gave me four months, gave me two vehicles and a colleague and a couple of drivers and survey potential customers, potential dealers, potential repair shops, 
and come back and sort of report back and sort of say, how will we go to market in this? And uh, they said that uh, it's a clean sheet of paper. We don't have to imitate what Tata is doing or what Ambassador is doing or what Matador is doing or what Jeep is doing. Uh, we can learn from them, but we don't have to do exactly that. We are starting afresh. So that was the project. And uh, I totally loved it. I mean, you know, traveling the country, driving this new Toyota pickup truck and learning a lot, using my engineering knowledge to explain and sort of uh, explaining, using my engineering knowledge to explain back to the engineers back in the company as to what did I learn from the customers and how does that translate into real engineering? That I thought was uh, one of my breakthroughs where I said that marketing can be a very interesting uh, career, which where I can use my engineering. I'm sorry, I gave you a very long answer, but I feel I still <laughs> almost 40 years. I still feel very passionate about it. Yeah. Marketing is given that even in my family, my brother who did finance uh, and I, I went the market research and then advertising route used to say, you know, like these are talks. The real deal, nuts and bolts is, you know, money and how do you do business, etc. And now recently, uh, Atul, as people come and talk on my channel, they even talk about the value market marketing is creating in terms of emotions. It's like mm -hmm. we are just selling a product. We sold hope. We made them feel glad and, and less guilty or, or more content, etc. So, you know, marketing is also looking at how it's... Uh, uh, Humanize. I mean, there is potential to really be uh, looking at your consumer as a human. Yeah, no, but I think, but that's a, that's a very good point because um, when I think of how is how is engineering helped me in marketing? You know, if I were to take that question, and my answer is that if you think of what what does what does what does engineering really teach you, uh, especially in a place like IIT, you know, sort of the elite institution, uh, you know. Uh, it really teaches you problem solving. Uh, engineers are very good at looking at something and say, it's a, there's, here's the problem, here's how we'll fix it. And uh, doing the analysis, sort of almost a dispassionate uh, kind of a analysis. That's what engineering is all about. It's not about learning any formulas or pistons and this and that. I mean, that's, that's the mechanics of it. But in essence, you're learning how to solve problems. If you think about business, what does what a business do? A business is going to be successful. If, if, if you think of business as my job is to sell you uh, windows or doors or pens or Coca-Cola or cars, I think you are shortchanging yourself as a business person. Your job is not to sell anything. Your job is not to market anything. You're, if, you, if you, as a business leader, if you make your job, job of solving somebody's problem, through your product that you might have, through a service you might have, through some, uh, you know, whatever you might have. That is, the, I think, the right way to, to approach uh, business and, and marketing. So you're not out there selling anything. You're solving somebody's problems. And if you do that, that's when you build loyalty. Really, really putting it in perspective, what marketing is doing. And there's another beautiful analogy uh, that you take now. In, in the next few questions, will be about you know how how you you're putting in perspective a lot of things in very simple terms um so when you say marketing is like a bridge that is a b uh, when you compare it with headlights and and you know sales and marketing you put it in perspective these few things uh let's start with it uh, for people to get into uh, perspective what, what is marketing really doing in an organization 
Yeah. So in fact, if I were to uh, do the second edition of the book, I'll expand on that bridge thing because the bridge still sort of conveys that you have something in the factory that you make and then there's a consumer at the other end that you are trying to sort of get the product to and somehow you need to get there. You know, It still is about getting uh, from point A to point B. That is still true. But I think if you approach it from the point of view of solving problems uh, for that customer, I think you come up with a better way to explain what is the role of marketing. And the marketing's role is that you present your, first of all, that's the other mistake many people make. People think of marketing as something that comes out of the company heading towards the customer, whether it's advertisement, whether it's a message, whether it's a product, whether it's a brochure, whether it's a website, it's like something sitting at the center, throwing something out. Actually, true marketing doesn't start there. That's only half of the marketing. The true marketing actually starts from the customer. The customer tells the company or the customer or the company seeks the answers from the customer as to what exactly are you suffering from? What exactly are you not happy about? What exactly uh, are your problems? What exactly are your pain points? Uh, and it, and they, those are not the easiest things to ask. Because you know, somebody might say, I, I want this, but why do they want this? What is the what is the underlying pain? So that's something I learned in my first four, four months of the project. You know, because that was a job that I had that I had to, I just couldn't, I mean, you know, you go and try and promote a new vehicle and which is going to be priced one and a half times more than a Tata truck. And it's going to be half the size and half the weight, uh, the weight capacity of a Tata truck. I mean, it's a difficult, uh, difficult proposition. So we have to uncover what is the pain point that they have with the existing vehicles where we could fit in as a potential solution. So that's sort of what real marketing is. It starts from the customer, you learn from the customer, you come up with a solution for that, you present it that way, and then you emanate it out towards your customers. So that's sort of the, that can be the full bridge, yeah. Yeah, the two-way bridge. And Exactly, more, it's a two-way bridge, precisely. Yes, yes. and I told more and more, uh, even for branding and building a brand communication with whole social media and content and you know, you uh, being part of that conversation as a brand and learning all the time about, you know, who you are to them, etc. And this whole lack of control is becoming so healthy. And uh, if you look at marketing itself as a two-way bridge, then, you know, you got to encourage that at every level, uh, even as product feedback. And I'm so, I'm so, I mean, I can imagine you in those four months, you know, talking to everyone and you know, like learning and and uh, being surprised uh, and being delighted about uh, you know how useful this was to the entire organization and to your um, mentor and boss at that time. Because I started with consumer research, and you know I light up uh, every time <laughs> because you yeah, know, some of the some of the. In fact, you, if you, I think you've read the book, so you probably will remember an anecdote which happened out in uh, in Assam. Uh, where uh, I mean, throughout the throughout our exp our uh, research, what we were discovering was that people were not interested in seat belts. This is 1983, 84. So there were no seat belt laws. There were no vehicles being sold with seat belts. But Toyota had sent uh, sent us a vehicle which had seat belts. So we wanted to decide whether we should introduce the vehicle with seat belts or not, and if so, how much should we price it and all that. And of course, we had all the data which shows that seat belts save lives. But then as we were asking the question, not a single person, not, not one person uh, that we surveyed 
said, yeah, I want seat belts and I'll be willing to pay X for that. In fact, many people pushed back and looked at it and sort of said, you know what, this is, uh, in fact, they said it's a jab, you know, uh, sort of a Punjabi uh, word. That it's a, like, a, it's like a, I'm going to be bound by something. Um, and uh, they would not pay for it. Some of them even went as far as saying that it looks like it's, a, it's some kind of a death trap which didn't make any sense to us, us, you know, the youngster engineers who had all the data and the facts, till we reached Assam where we saw an accident happen. And when we asked the truck driver who had escaped with no injury as to what happened, and he said that as soon as he realized the brakes had failed, he just opened the door and jumped out. So then we realized that the reason seatbelt is perceived as, um, as a death trap is that they won't be able to jump out in time because they'll have to unbuckle themselves because the whole Indian driver mindset back then was when, in, uh, when things are going bad, uh, when, when an accident is imminent, just bail out. Uh, so that was the realization where I figured out that all the facts, all the data, all the numbers, all the history from the world over is not going to be able to overcome the, the consumer mindset because that is built on personal experience. And it's very hard to convince a customer that, no, when you're belted in, don't jump out and trust me, you will survive. Mm. Yeah, amazing how beliefs uh, have been built and how you have to work with them. Otherwise, they work against you. So, exactly. Yeah. And um, Atul, so uh, now to the other aspect of sales and marketing with the digital strategy coming in. And with people thinking that marketers, you know, wanting it to be accountable and more lead generation and more uh, focus on conversion. And, you know, this again, the focus, uh, you know, for this whole thing has become, uh, you know, I have to create this much sales. And, 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 and surprisingly, sometimes even in the consumer journey, they map it out and everything and then not focus on the awareness or the brand building, you know, it becomes very short term. So this whole head, head, headlight analogy that you have, uh, because it, it gives some status to sales also. <laughs> so I think sales deserves not just some status, but pretty significant status. Yes. In fact, the, the, you know, here's the irony of this. Um, I've been doing this for almost 40 years now. Um, most people use sales and marketing in one breath. It's like sales and marketing. You know, what is he doing? He's doing sales and marketing. Um, then when you talk to the salespeople, um, most of them will prefer that they were called marketing. In other words, if, if they had to tell this to their girlfriend or boyfriend, they'll probably say that I do marketing for, for a firm as opposed to I'm a salesperson. Be that as it may. You know, I'm just reporting what I've seen. Okay. Um, but then when we go into the details of it from within the company, and if you think of this as a business management uh, question as to what's the difference between sales and marketing, the way I look at this is that they both have to work together, but they both, and, uh, and they both essentially are supposed to drive business growth for the company. But there is a distinction between the two. And that's where I came up with this analogy of, of headlights, like in a typical car, in a typical vehicle, uh, we have a high beam and we have a low beam. Now, 
if either one of them is not functioning, we'll consider that to be, uh, you know, my car needs to be repaired. I, 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 there are only headlights or high beams or I have only low beams, but you need both of them there. So what is the purpose of a high beam? The purpose of a high beam is that you get to see, you know, maybe 300 meters ahead, maybe 400 meters ahead, see where the curves are, see if there's a deer crossing, see what, what's out there 300, 400 meters ahead. But if that's all you had, you'll not be able to see what's immediately in front of you which is also pretty important because that's where the car is going to go in the next two seconds. So low beam is, is, is sort of what I think of the sales organization because their job is, to, I need to make some sales this week, this month, next this quarter. Yes, I'm interested in what will happen in 2024, but frankly, if I, do, if I have to choose between should I spend time on working on next month's quota versus 2024, I'd rather work on next month's quota because 2024 will happen, you know, it's good six months away. Marketing's job, on the other hand, should not be day-to-day, week-to-week, even month-to-month. They should be sort of scanning on, on a more outward basis, more of a long-distance basis, to sort of say, what kind of products should we have? What kind of services should we have? Where is the market going? What is likely to happen? So uh, that's how I use the low, high, uh, the low beam and the high beam headlight analogy to make a distinction between sales and marketing. And I hope people also understand that by, when I use that analogy, I mean that both of them are equally important and they have to work together. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the, the it seems like the elder brother, you know, in the family marketing, you know, it's like think ahead, uh, you know, plan for. <laughs> the, I guess that's why it gets more. Uh, uh, it's like the mature elder brother, you know. Okay. Uh, that's one way to look at it but then there's a flip side to that mm-hmm. because uh, if the company is not doing too well mm-hmm. then in some ways uh, you know it's a matter of survival I think sales is probably going to save the day faster than the marketer might yeah. so you know of course you can convert a marketing person into a sales guy and send him outside and uh, make him sell but uh, if you think of what is what does the marketing look at? If marketing looks at six months and beyond, but if your problem, if there's fire on the deck that needs to be taken care of, uh, I think sales is probably going to be the younger brother, but the one that saves the day. Mm. Hand in hand, it has to be hand, hand in, in hand. hand. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Not, I don't want to make it a let's bash sales together. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Why would we? Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, then uh, we have Big M. So I think uh, my whole elder brother thing came from this. (laughs) There is a big M and there is a small M. What is this? It's so interesting. You know, it's like really putting it all in perspective, you know, like all. Yeah, so, Hmm. you know, my background, in case you you didn't discover this, I'll just go through this. uh, so I told you I started with Toyota and then got my MBA at Yale. And then for the first 25 years or so of my professional career, I was a marketing person, marketing manager, product manager, marketing director, vice president of marketing, chief marketing officer, and so on and so forth, all you know, the whole range in various companies, automotive, industrial, healthcare, technology, so on and so forth. Uh, then for the last 10 years or so, I've been... Uh, working as a consultant, bringing my marketing knowledge to small and mid-sized companies. So I'm a fractional CMO. So I'm a partner in a firm called Chief Outsiders. Uh, 
So during the last 10 years, I've had a lot of interactions. I've personally worked on about 45 projects over the last 10 years. So I've interacted with 45 different CEOs and their teams. So one common thread uh, that I discovered in talking to the CEOs was that um, they had very limited understanding of marketing. So whenever I ask them what marketing is or describe what marketing is, um, they described it correctly, but incompletely. So, you know, I was reminded of the Indian parable of the, you know, five blind men describing an elephant. So they all were describing the elephant, the piece of the elephant correctly, but nobody was really describing the elephant. So what are the common things that people were describing? Well, it's a website, it's, it, it does advertising, it's PR, it's social media, it's digital, you know, all of that was being presented and that's what marketing is. And yeah, that is part of marketing. But then I would, whenever I ask them, what else is marketing? What else do you think of when you think of marketing? It was basically, no, that's pretty much it. And that's when I discovered that uh, there is a big gap and what people were focusing on so I figured that I need to explain what full elephant is. And I need to acknowledge that what they are describing is marketing, but it's a subset of marketing. So I label that small m. So small m marketing is the more visible part of marketing. That's what most people are familiar with. If you talk to somebody, you know, what's marketing is the brochure or the website and all that. But what's the what's behind the scenes marketing, which is not described by typical CEOs, especially in B2B, is things like what's the strategy? What channels are we going to take? What's the positioning? What's the messaging? How do we are we going to price it? What's our larger game plan? That is part of marketing. And that is what I call big M marketing. And one of the points I make is that yes, small M marketing is very important. In fact, in a typical healthy organization, about 80% of your marketing dollars and time should be spent on small M marketing. But if you spend only on small M without paying any attention to big M, there's a very good chance that almost half of your dollars that you're spending on small M are going to go to waste. Why? Because you haven't worked out the foundation. You haven't worked out the strategy. So my advice to my clients has always been that you need to take some part of your budget and you have to spend that on big M marketing, get your foundation right, get your strategy right, and then small M will flow uh, more smoothly for you. So that's sort of the big dis distinction between big M, which is sort of the upfront strategy, foundational work, and then the more visible part, which is small M. Right, right. So uh, now we go to the measurable ROI uh, aspect. So if you can measure it, you can track it, you can manage it. Uh, the smart uh, objectives. There's a there's a whole lot of emphasis and rightfully on measuring it. Uh, mm -hmm. Even personal goals. You know, today uh, all the technology in health is all about you know for all lifestyle diseases. It is about being able to measure it, track it, manage it. The whole loops have become so important. So when you talk about the obsession with it, is uh, a little bit not taking into account certain other aspects that are intangible. Could you please explain? Because this is really heartening, um, uh, Atul. Because uh, you know, because I'm in the in the brand strategy space, and we have to often deal with the intangibles that are very important. Uh, mm -hmm. All trying to measure it, etc. But we say all the things that are most important. And of course, I'm an Indian and an Asian. <laughs> most important things in life are the 
intangibles, which is very difficult to, you know, just kind of uh, put a number to. What would you say? Yeah, please. Yeah, so uh, just to... Uh, just to sort of emphasize this point that I am an engineer by training and I'm an engineer who loved to be an engineer. So I love data. I love analysis. I read a lot about engineering and numbers and all that. I'm very comfortable with. I even teach business math at the graduate level. So, so I'm not shy of numbers. I'm not shy of uh, analytics or anything like that. But then over the years, I've also realized that numbers is not everything. Um, and numbers can be abused, believe it or not. So, um, yes, ROI is very important. You make decisions, you make choices based on ROI. But when you don't have an ROI, in other words, when you're not able to calculate an ROI, uh, should be before you throw it out, unless you have an ROI, it's not worth looking at, you should examine why is it that you're not able to calculate the ROI. And uh, if there are good reasons for that, also ask the question, what is the alternative uh, to measuring an ROI? In other words, if I decide to do this, even though I cannot measure an ROI, how will I know that I'm succeeding? Because there's no point in the business world, you don't want to do anything without knowing whether it's working or not. But so my point in the book is that ROI is important, but when you don't have an ROI, don't throw it out. In fact, if another inside story on this, uh, you know, the book has 19 chapters. Uh, and if it wasn't for COVID, it probably would have had 24 by now. Um, but the first thought that I had, you know, in other words, seven years ago when this was just a PowerPoint, the first slide was what is now chapter 14. So my the book started in my head on this ROI conversation. So again, this is this is close to my heart because this is where it sort of uh, this is the seed for for the whole book. So one example that I can give you, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm going to give you an example from the U.S., but it will make sense to you. So, you know, Apple, you know, the big, the world's biggest company today and the most admired, the most successful, and, you know, all the platitudes that you can throw at it, they probably are still in, insufficient to describe what the company is. So that company is based in the Bay Area, in the Silicon Valley here. And if you go from San Francisco to San Jose, uh, they're in, close to San Jose. So that's a, about a 50-mile drive, 70 kilometers or so. And during the daytime, it can take about an hour and a half because of traffic and whatnot. So in that 70-kilometer, 50-mile uh, road on either side, it's a nice road, uh, there are close to a dozen um, billboards uh, of Apple, huge, huge billboards. Um, in India back then, we used to call them hoardings. I don't know if we still call them hoardings or not. So those big, big uh, banners, not digital, they're literally uh, old style Out billboards. Of home. Billboards, yeah. Yeah. And most of them are used for iPhone advertising. Uh, and within the iPhone, they usually show shot on iPhone. So they'll show pictures of pictures that you and I might have taken. And they're showcasing shot on iPhones so to basically show how good their camera is and how people are using their phones. So the question is, how many more iPhones? And of course, those that's prime real estate, probably the most expensive billboards that you can get in the US. And there are about a dozen one way and a dozen the other way. So Apple is spending millions of dollars and they've been doing it for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, ever since iPhone has been there, maybe even longer. How many iPhones are being sold? More iPhones are being sold because of those billboards. 
Nobody knows. Nobody can know. I mean, when Tim Cook asks that question, he, he, no, he's not going to get a, he, he'll get a, if he gets an answer, he'll get a made up answer. Nobody can tell how many more iPhones were sold because I saw the billboard. Because when you go and buy an iPhone, you never say, I, I'm buying it because I, uh, because I saw this billboard on exit 21. Why is Apple doing it? Because there's no ROI. You cannot, I, I know I'm spending millions, but I don't know how many more iPhones I'm selling. So why am I spending all this money? The reason I'm spending all this money, if I'm Tim Cook, is because I know that there's so much traffic on, on, uh, on that road and the traffic is getting worse. More and more people are spending more and more time on that road and they are uh, looking at these billboards because they have nothing better to do. So it's helping them in brand building. And that's where I think the ROI fails. Now you can actually take this further. So that's billboard. There's a, there's an Apple store, right? So you can go into an Apple store and now you have Apple stores in Delhi and Bombay. Uh, so you can walk into a store and still not buy an iPhone. You can come home and buy it online. There are other channels. There are lots of other websites. There are lots of other Facebook and Instagrams and you know Macworld and this and that that you can read reviews. So today, it's extremely difficult to assign 100% accurate or even 80% accurate attribution as to this iPhone was sold because of this particular event or this particular uh, incidence or channel. Usually, sales happen because of a multiple of factors. You know, I saw it on this, I heard it from this, I read the review, I saw the billboard, I saw the commercial, I was waiting at an airport and people were, uh, I overheard a conversation. All of that adds up to you clicking the button or you walking into a store and making the purchase. So if you try to attribute it to any one of those channels, you're actually fooling yourself because you're wrongly attributing. So that's my uh, definition of abuse of or misuse of ROI. Yeah, which yeah. should be avoided. Yeah, absolutely. This whole thing about, uh, you know, when, when you clarify that you love numbers, you know, they have a meaning, it's a language, but at the same time, it's there's an interpretation and a story being built. I mean, when there exactly. is a quantitative research, uh, uh, you know, being shared and, and, you know, there are conclusions and then uh, if you get into it, how did this happen? And, 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 and you know, you can you can always know that is this the correct interpretation or is, uh, I mean, it could be, but is that the only interpretation, you know? So if you, if you go deeper and if you, if you're open, uh, you are using that number, uh, like you said, it can be abused. So you're using it, but you've got to be conscious of the fact that it can be abused. Okay. So um, that was, that was very, very nice, uh, very beautiful examples. Um, the impact of the billboard, the, the st status of, of such expensive real estate and these uh, vast images, because it's all about the camera, you know, how it plays on the mind and creates a desirability that's amazing. Yeah, yeah and actually on that point, um, there is another angle to this. So, you know, in the advertising world, we say that uh, if you throw an ad, um, let's say, you know, I'm, I've, got a, I've got an iMac over here. So if, if I see an ad for an iMac, uh, that is an ad that's wasted on me because why I'm already an iMac user. You know? so, so it was a waste. So you can think about it that those iPhone ads that are there and uh, you know, let's say 30%, 40% of the drivers are using Apple. So the, are they being wasted? And my answer is no. 
In fact, that's the thing, a very clever thing that Apple is doing. The reason they're focused on short on iPhone. If I'm an iPhone user, and I've been an iPhone user, and let's say I'm going to stay an iPhone user. So in other words, no advertising is needed for me. Any advertising thrown my way is a waste. But when I see short on iPhone, I'm sort of wait a minute. I didn't know I can take pictures like that. So I'm going to try and use my iPhone a little better next time. And what is that going to do? That's going to make me better engaged with the product, which means the next time I want to buy a product, I'm actually going to be predisposed to buy an iPhone because now I've got a better relationship with the product. So they're, if they're reaching out to Android users, of course, that's the ideal target market for them. But when they reach out to Apple users, iPhone users, even there, they're having a positive impact. Why? Because they are building that brand loyalty. They're building that higher level of engagement, which is always, always uh, helpful in building uh, brand loyalty. So I, I feel that's it's, it's one of the smarter things that uh, Apple has done. Very, very insightful. Okay. Now we come to pricing because um, you know you you've covered that also in great detail. Uh, significance of pricing, how this is not taught adequately, and how a marketer is not uh, involved in this decision making, and how much of a difference this can make. Could you like to share something about that? Yeah, so I discovered that sort of the hard way. You know, when I studied marketing, uh, or when I was when I was doing my MBA, uh, we were told there are four P's to marketing you know, product pricing, place, and promotion. And nobody ever told us that uh, pricing is an afterthought or it's almost non-existent or anything. I mean, we were just told they have four Ps. And then, you know, there are pros and cons to each and all that. So, I mean, you know, but when I went into the real world, I discovered that most companies uh, are, they don't sort of think of pricing as a marketing function. And in part, that's because there are, I think, various reasons for it. Uh, Many marketeers come from non uh, uh, non numeric uh, background, so they are you know they are probably less comfortable in doing some math. So that's part of it. Uh, the second is that that distinction between sales and marketing is not very clear. So they may have a marketing title, but their mindset might be of selling, and mindset of selling usually means that if I lower the price, I'll sell more. That's all they know. So in other words, they don't know real marketing, real pricing, where you can increase your price and increase your profitability. And not I'm not talking about unit profitability. I'm talking about your actual bottom line. So that doesn't that is not intuitive to a salesperson. The salesperson says, lower the price, I'll sell more. Um, they don't think in terms of I raise the price and I'll actually make more money for the company. So that's part of it. And then this has been a sort of a self-feeding cycle. And I did some research a few years ago and discovered that if you look at pricing as a course, not pricing as a chapter or, or as a, as a day-long course within a marketing subject, but pricing as a course in itself, like a three-credit course in an in a MBA program, there are only less than 10% of the business schools that offer that. And that too, it's an elective, but 90% of schools don't even have it as an elective. So in other words, you can actually graduate with an MBA, with specialization in marketing, and all pricing that you did was one class or two classes, maybe three hours or six hours max, and that's it. And if you happen to miss those three hours or six hours, uh, you miss one of the four Ps. So that's where we are. So our pricing has been sort of pushed up or relegated to finance function or as an afterthought, or pushed it up all the way to the CEO level. 
and not taken as as a as a marketing function and that is something that bothers me uh, yeah. fortunately i worked for some companies where including toyota including cummins where uh, and kodak where marketing had the responsibility for pricing and that's that's where it belongs um one of my uh, guests talked about how they developed a system to find the right pricing and they figured that starbucks was uh, you know pricing itself much lower in a certain country and um, i mean it was a significant amount i don't remember and now i get it you know now, now i get it why why this happens because i mean though the research happens about price elasticity or you know how much can we stretch uh, etc but that whole um, sensibility to be there in the foundation of a marketer while they are studying and the significance uh, has to be there and i did one podcast with tim smith uh, who's written an entire book on pricing and it was really a master class yeah. okay atul the random acts of marketing i'm so sorry it's going to stretch a little bit uh, but we are really no, that's okay that's okay yeah <laughs> So when you said random acts of marketing, uh, it's 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 such a catchy phrase, and <laughs> when you describe it, it's even more telling. Um, and and you've already uh, set the you know uh, foundation for how the consumer's life is. So why don't you tell us how this doesn't work and what is the way to look at it? Yeah, so let me let me first describe what random act. What do I mean by random acts of marketing, and why does it happen? So it's fairly common, uh, and and your listeners and watchers will probably relate to this very quickly. That when you know when things are not going too well in a company, and you know, every company has its ups and downs. You know, it's not everybody, not everything goes in a straight line up. In fact, very few things go up in a straight line. So. When when you are under pressure that okay something is not right or we need to do something different, we need marketing to be more effective. Often, that we need marketing to be more effective translates into let me think of something else that I can do. So you know, the marketer goes home, has a sleepless night. Next day in the morning, comes to work, and says, you know what, I got this idea. I'm going to do this. I'm going to now. We are going to do an event. We are going to do a webinar, or we are going to advertise in this channel, or I'm going to fire this and hire this. You know, some some crazy thing. Usually, what that leads to is that you keep adding to your marketing tactics. So, if you think of, uh, you know, I've used the analogy of of an orchestra. So, if if the if the music is not, if you've got four instruments and if it's not sounding right. The tendency is let's add another instrument, and if that still doesn't add sound right, let's add another more. You know, you keep adding. So you ultimately get to a sort of a cacophony of marketing, and you do those things randomly. In other words, whatever the first thing was going, whatever your first tactic was, that is still ongoing. You just add layer, layer on top, and you keep adding more layers. So that's what I call random acts of marketing. Just because you think it, you do it. This, if you stop doing random acts of marketing, that's what I call an absolute guaranteed way to get ROI on your marketing. Because all I'm asking you to do when you, I mean, I ask you to stop doing random acts of marketing is I'm not asking you to stop doing anything. So if you going to the trade shows, I want you to go to the trade shows. 
if you're advertising in times of India or economic times, I want you to advertise. But I just want you to coordinate the two. So your money you're spending in trade shows and the money you're spending on Facebook and the money you're spending in economic times, spend the same amount of money, no less. But by coordination, by linking the three together, you will get a higher return. So for the same expense, for the same investment, you get a higher return. By simply orchestrating, to use another uh, analogy or the same term on, on the same analogy, by orchestrating your marketing plan, you're going to get a better, better sound, better effect, better results from your marketing. So that's that's what random acts of marketing is, and that's what you should avoid doing, and that's how to avoid doing it. Mm. So um, I'll take this uh, uh, further and request you to how marketers can avoid doing this. How should they approach and think it through? And what are the few things that they can immediately start doing so that it just works well together it's, and it's more thought through or, or whatever is required? Yeah. Yes. So, so the trick is, first of all, it's best to not get to a situation where you're doing random acts of argument. At some stage, you will find that you are doing it. So the best way to avoid it is by, by respecting the big M and small M marketing. So in other words, if you do big M first, and then get to small M, you are significantly reducing the probability of getting into the random acts of marketing. Why? Because you've created the, created the foundation, you know what you're supposed to do, and you also know why you're not going to do certain things. In fact, one of my favorite sayings is that great marketing is not about deciding what to do, it's equally about deciding what not to do. Um, so that's part of great marketing. So if you do big M marketing, you are making those choices. These are the four things we are going to do. These are the 16 things we are not going to do. And here's why. Now, chances are that over two, three, four years, you will still find yourself, if you were to look back and say, oh, wait a minute, I'm doing too many things. So if you are in that stage, then I would say, again, do a little pause, go into a room, take a week off or whatever, basically doing a control or delete <laughs> metaphorically and re-looking and sort of thinking, why am I doing this? What, what is an end result? And again, not just ROI. In some instances, you'll have the ROI to explain it. In some instances, you may not have an ROI, the examples that I just gave. But still, you should have a story. Why does it make sense for me to have billboards on Route 101 between San Jose and San Francisco, even though there's no ROI to it? So if you have a story that you can justify, then those are the things you should do. And things that you cannot justify or things that are now obvious to you that you are uh, wasting your time and money, then take those out. So, I mean, I know it sounds easy and uh, frankly, it is easy. The, the difficult part is recognizing that you need to take a pause because we all get on a treadmill and we all want to do more, 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 more. I don't have the time to think what my strategy is. So I'm, I'm implementing all the tactics without thinking whether they're right or wrong because I don't have time to do strategy. That is wrong. You always have to make time for doing some strategic thinking. Awesome, awesome. And while you were talking, I I was also reminded of uh, how you've uh, made the distinction between speed and velocity. So if you do the big M first and you're doing the foundation, you are ensuring you're in the right direction, you know, whether you are That's slow right. or, you know, how you're making progress, but at least you're not being self -disciplined. Absolutely. That is the distinction between speed and velocity, right? So I, I had not forgotten my ninth grade physics. Uh, that speed alone is not going to get you anywhere because going fast in the wrong direction is is actually counterproductive. 
So you have to get the velocity right, which means get the direction right, and then then go fast. Rapid fire. So here comes mother's best advice. Do your thing. Alternate profession could have been? Astronaut. Wow. What would you do on Mars for fun? Look at the Earth. <laughs> As per your wife, your most often used phrase? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that requires thinking. Uh, I mean, that's a question better asked of her than of me. Yeah. Okay. What is her most often used phrase? I, I, I. <laughs> okay. One thing no one knows about you. Well, somebody knows something about me, right? So, but most people don't know about me is that I have actually driven significant amount of distance at about 250 kilometers an hour uh, without being in a race. So, oh, wow. From, from, wow. from Munich to Hamburg. Yeah. Okay. Okay. At, at, at a speed of 250. And uh, yes, you wanted to fly. Yeah, I can see that, right? Yeah. <laughs> a book you'd like to gift to all your friends cannot be your own. Uh, my my recent favorite is a book called Range. Uh, it's I won't call it it's it's the best ever book, but it's it's my recent favorite, and and that book actually talks about. Oh, sorry, you didn't want me to elaborate, so I'll just leave it at that. Oh, it's by David Epstein called Range. <laughs> I should have shot. What would you tell your eighteen-year-old self? What my mother told me: Do your thing. Awesome. Don't think awesome. too much. What you are telling me, don't think too much. <laughs> okay. What's something new happening in your life right now? I am continuing to travel. Travel is my other hobby besides music. And um, I just crossed 50, 50 countries and um, a few more to go. And I hope awesome. I can continue to do that for a few more years. Okay. Your favorite childhood? I'm actually leaving for Peru in, in 10 days. Okay. Your favorite childhood memory? My favorite childhood memory is uh, in my entire schooling period. Uh, our, I mean, I'm, I'm still very close to all my classmates. There were 17 of us in the class and we are still together. We, are, we have a WhatsApp group that we actively participate on. So. IITNs? Delhi IIT? No, uh, this is pre-IIT. Pre, pre okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, if you were to uh, devote the rest of your life to philanthropy, what cause would you choose? Very good question. I think I would choose homelessness. Okay. Your greatest joy? My greatest joy happens uh, when I'm flying and listening to my headphones. So that's my combination of my two favorite activities, right? So I'm I'm flying, on a, I'm on a 15-hour flight hmm. with my headphones and my playlist. Transdent. That is heaven. Mm -hmm. Awesome. What's a lesson that took you a long time to learn? The, the relevance and the irrelevance, and both are true, relevance and the irrelevance of numbers. Mm -hmm. That took me at least 25 years to figure out. Wow. <laughs> okay. What is one missed opportunity that you wish you could have a second chance at? I don't think there is anything like that. In fact, I would flip it and sort of say that a lot of my success, at least half of my success has come from the so-called missed opportunities. In other words, I wanted to do A, I was asked to do B, I was forced to do B, and that ended up being the right thing, including 
making a career in marketing. So yeah. my missed opportunity was I wanted to be an engineer, wanted to be a car designer. That's a missed opportunity. But I'm so glad that it's a missed opportunity because yeah. I actually uh, made lemonade out of the so-called lemon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, now it's a wrap up, uh, Atul, and I request you to share any online addresses, emails, anything you want to say about the book, uh, the links. Yeah, so uh, my uh, I'm on LinkedIn. That's one way to find me, and there are not too many Atul Minochas, and you know you'll you'll figure this out. Um, my email address, I can send it to you. You can put it wherever you need to put it. Um, it's aminocha at chiefoutsiders.com um, or atul.minocha at me.com, you know, personal or professional. Uh, let's see, what else did you want? Um, yeah, let, let's uh, say a few lines about the book. Lies, so yeah, this, this, is, this is the book, right? Uh, lies, Damn Lies and Marketing. And I think the title says it all, uh, because the reason I wrote this book is not because I felt that they, the world needs another book in marketing, but I felt that the world needs to be informed of what bad marketing is, and there's a lot of it. In fact, more than half of it is bad marketing, which is the lies and the damn lies, and what is real marketing. So I hope this book serves that cause in sort of saying, what's the bad stuff, what's the fake stuff, and what is the real thing. So that's what the book is about. It's an easy read. There are 19 chapters. Each one maybe, you know, you can read in 10 minutes. And then one of the things I, one of the new ideas I had, and I'm going to show you this, um, is that first of all, the whole book is an easy read. I mean, you, you can attest to it because you've read it. But at the back, uh, on page 193, I have a reference guide. So if you don't have the time to read this easy read book, I will say take the time to read the 13 pages because <laughs> those are like short paragraphs on each chapter. And then you can go back and see, okay, this was of interest. Let me read that chapter. You don't have to read them in a sequence. So one of the things, I'll, I'll be very candid with you. One of the, one of the concerns I had when, when you reached out to me was, uh, well, uh, you know, if, when somebody does so many, uh, so many podcasts on a regular basis, uh, it's going to be very generic. It's going to be, you know, standard questions, what motivated you and blah, 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 blah. But then I was very pleasantly surprised when I received this, uh, this email from you sort of saying that I want to talk about these things. And what are those things? It became obvious to me that you had read the book. So you wanted to talk about things which were going to be of interest as opposed to, okay, this is my standard 18 question that I go through. So that tells me that you have deep interest in obviously someone like me, um, but you have deep interest in extracting what I have to offer or what somebody else has to offer so that they can go to your audience. So that's the reason. So my message to your audience would be that uh, you're not going to get the same old, same old uh, from you, you're always going to get something that is relevant, something that's interesting, something that piques your interest, which in turn, hopefully will be of value to your audience as well. Thank you so much. Uh, that is the Jagged Edge. My channel is all about new ideas, disseminating, and I wish everybody stays jagged as well, like true and real. <laughs> yeah, very true. I mean, it's almost almost the theme of my book also that, you know, that throw the throw the throw the chaff out throw the lies out and stay yeah. true to what's real yeah thank you so much <laughs>